Right, I'm seeing a few. Sorry, Ken. Uh, okay. okay, great, great, great. Pardon me for coming in late. Um, I struggled to join because of the link um, that I was handed, but yeah. Um, has everybody gotten a leg stretch post the previous session? Are we good to go? Let's just see by a uh, sign of thumbs up if you guys are good for us to go on to our next session. Okay. Right, great. Good evening, everyone, once again. I am Moseunyana David Mugwena, and I am here to just speak to you guys today about the value relevance essentially of sustainability disclosures. Now, if you guys could just kindly let me know once my screen has started sharing and we can take it from there. I'm going to need one of you to please just kindly unmute and let me know when, whether you can see the screen or whether you can see my projection or not. Uh, we see I it. Can see it. Is, it, is it presenting in presentation mode or is it currently just showing the slideshow, the entire deck? Presentation, presentation mode. Presentation mode. This is perfect. And guys, I'm just going to switch my camera off. Um, I'll switch it back on as soon as we reach certain points in time. And I'd like to invite you guys to just please participate. Be as participative as you can. Wherever you need me to clarify something, please just let me know. This is intended to be a two-way conversation between me and you guys. Because I will not be able to see your hands that are raised, I invite you guys to please, please just unmute and stop me wherever you're needing clarity. Okay, thank you um, for sticking around once again and, and being here for this session. Now, when we talk about sustainability, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about the interplay of three aspects. Um, the first aspect being the environmental aspect that I have here in the yellow circle. And when we talk about the environmental aspect, we are talking about the use of natural resources, the preservation of natural resources, the management of how we impact the environment, be it positively or negatively, and the reduction of pollution, be it pollution to our air, our water, our land, or how we dispose of the goods that we use as an entity that is operating to generate profits for its stakeholders. The next pillar of sustainability that we talk to is the economic aspect of it. Now with the economic aspect of sustainability, this is where we're saying every business exists to make a profit. And in order to make a profit, a business needs to number one, manage its profit margins by reducing costs in undertaking cost-saving initiatives, and also then impacting the economy insofar as how the economy is supposed to grow because every business should actually be existing with the sole purpose of providing a solution to the economy as a whole. And as the solution is being provided by the business, we anticipate that the economy will grow. And added to that, the economic element speaks to the fact that an entity or entities should continuously be undertaking research and development, particularly now that we have the fourth industrial um, revolution that is here with us and the need for entities to be innovative and come up with solutions that are not just for today or for ensuring that the business exists today, but to ensure that the business exists in the next couple, 10, 20, 100 years. 
The third element or sphere of sustainability pertains to the social aspect of things. And it's here in the pink circle that we've got over here. And when we talk about the social aspect of things, as, as you would understand, we are now delving away from the strict sense of the entity existing as a corporate entity to saying, how is it impacting the environment in the, the social environments around it? How is it improving the standard of living for its employees for argument's sake? How is it improving the standard of living for the people in the area in which it operates? How is it educating people about not just its products, but wherever there are educational needs that the entity can plug itself in? How is it influencing the community? And how over and above that, how is it creating equal opportunities for people? And that's why you often find, or, or in recent times, particularly in the past two, three years, huge corporate entities have been hammering and, and targeting um, the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusivity to just make sure that from a social perspective, the organizations that they are running are actually ensuring that there's diversity from the top down, insofar as the hierarchy of the organization, they're ensuring that there is equity where everybody is given a fair chance to succeed at whatever part of the business they have decided to plug themselves into, and also providing inclusive environments that include people and make sure that nobody's discriminated against on the grounds of race, gender, sexual orientation, and whatever other demarcations that society may be seeing. Now, when we have the environmental element interplaying with the economic element, and then consequently interplaying with the social element, we have a mix of these elements that allows for an entity to find itself operating in a manner that is sustainable. And looking at these three pillars, you could then also see how the environmental element of things can work together with the economic element to form the environmental economic aspect of sustainability, where you have energy efficiency, you have subsidies or incentives for the use of natural resources. And this is where then there are financial decisions that are being made in light of the entity's impact to the environment, the physical environment in which it operates. Then you have the economic social aspect of things where we've got your business ethics. Um, this is where your corporate governance would find its, its placement to say, is the entity operating ethically? If there are elements of ethics that are not found, how are they managed? Because being unethical is a business risk on its own. We also have workers' rights falling in here. We've also got the fair trade coming in here. And with regards to fair trade, that's where you could then have um, regulatory frameworks, such as the Competition Commission in South Africa, that ensure that trade is fair and that no entity is reduced or it's, is 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 finding itself in a position where its ability to compete fairly is curtailed or reduced by other industry competitors. Then when we have this other interplay between the social environment, it's, it's, it's termed the social environmental, this is where we have environmental justice, um, where we're seeing things like your anti-rhino poaching that are taking place, the um, coming together of organizations to just preserve the environment the issues around water scarcity. We've got some organizations that are saying, look, we're pushing for ensuring that water being a scarce resource is not completely running out. This is where you've got things such as 
your food security becoming issues for societies and entities. And then also ensuring that businesses are stewards or good stewards of the natural resources that they use up. You often see this in entities that are in mining for argument's sake, where the entities in mining have to rehabilitate the grounds on which they have mined after a certain period of time in accordance with the mining licenses that have been granted to them. So that is just giving a background of sustainability to say it needs to touch on these three elements and these three elements should not be viewed in isolation from each other. I want to highlight the fact that they shouldn't be viewed in isolation from each other. The economic element, especially interacting with all of these should not be viewed in isolation because everything that is done to the environment or in a social aspect has an economic um, element to it, meaning there's a transactional element to it and vice versa. Everything that is transactional in an entity can either be impacting the social aspect of sustainability or the environmental aspect of sustainability. And this interconnectedness is what we're going to talk about when we ultimately talk to the disclosures around sustainability and what the entities are disclosing, disclosing or expected to disclose in those disclosures. So if you just want to think of sustainability in a philosophical manner, just getting, parking rather, the environmental, social, and economic aspect. Sustainability can be thought of as a means of using up the resources that we are finding here on earth in a manner that allows us to give back to the earth to ensure that the businesses that we're operating today are able to operate in future and for, to allow for other businesses to be able to operate in the foreseeable future and beyond. But question now becomes, how do entities then operationalize this whole social, environmental, and economic aspects of, of sustainability? How entities do this is through them having ESG frameworks. And when we look at ESG, we're talking to three pillars being the environmental pillar, the social pillar, and the governance pillar starting with the environmental pillar. To ensure that the organization is sustainable, it needs to have a climate change strategy. We have seen just how we've had floods ravaging the country. We have very abnormal um, kinds of weather conditions in the recent past. And this is speaking to the fact that there is a change in, in, in our climate and entities need to ensure that they have strategies to manage these climate changes. We also need to have entities that are looking into biodiversity to say, if we are the kind of entity that is operating in a manner that impacts the biodiversity that exists around us, for instance, if you are an entity that is making and selling honey, you need to be looking at how you are impacting the environment in that regard. If you're an entity that is making medicines, for argument's sake, and you're using rats to test medicines on these, you need to consider how that is impacting biodiversity around you. And you need to have strategies on how to manage your impact to the biodiversity that is existing here. You need to have processes and strategies in place to manage your water efficiency levels. Your energy efficiency levels need to also be considered, particularly in a South African context where we are now having things such as load shedding. Um, you need to consider your carbon intensity in your operations. You also need to have general environmental management systems. All of these need to be reflected in your strategy as an entity.
Then coming to the second pillar of ESG, with ESG, this is where we have, um, with the second pillar, we have the social aspect of things where once again, we're providing equal opportunities for people. You've got freedom of association as part of the policies of your entity. You've got health and safety as part of your policies for your employees, as well as your customers who are coming to your premises. Over and above that, you want to ensure a healthy and safe environment for the physical environment that is surrounding your premises and not necessarily within your premises. You need to also be considering your human rights, the customer and the product's responsibility. Um, as you guys have seen recently, we've got a whole lot of um, products that we're finding on the shelves that are recyclable. Everybody's going towards recyclable products. You get to a restaurant, you want a straw, they no longer make us plastic straws. We've got those paper straws that nobody likes. I don't know about you guys, but I, I really don't like those. But again, it's entities simply trying to be socially responsible. And also looking into things such as child labor, um, an entity that is employing underage children who are meant to ideally be going to school as opposed to being employed in factories and the likes, that speaks to the social aspect of ESG. And this too should be part of the strategy within an entity's management of its sustainability. The third pillar is our governance pillar. Now, this pillar speaks to business ethics, compliance to laws and regulations, your board independence as suggested by regulations or frameworks rather, such as the King Code, executive compensation, as well as shareholder democracy. So once again, just to recap, when we talk about sustainability, we are talking about an integrated way of running a business. This integrated way of running a business considers the social aspect of things. It considers the economic aspect of things, as well as the environmental aspect of things. Now, in considering these three elements, the entity itself needs to create an ESG framework that somehow helps the organization to operationalize its considerations of the economy, the environment, and society. Are there any questions so far? Any questions, guys? No questions. All right. Now, with us having had a backdrop of what sustainability is. So, yes. I'm sorry to stop you. Um, and I see there's another hand that's up before mine. Right. Um, I don't know if they want to go first or I should go. You can go right ahead, given that you've already unmuted. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, I just wanted to get um, what's this, this the standing of so for example ESG now and then uh, before this the social environmental and uh, economic uh, that one that we were speaking about yes I know normally we say that they come from I think it's the is it the SDGs the Sustainable Development Goals right mm. yes and I'm just now trying to practically then position it in the company to say 
by the time we then at, at what level of authority do we number one study this but then number two actually need to uh, be speaking to it in not just our solutions but in our everyday businesses um i know one of the things that i found very encouraging once upon a time i was reading an annual report and they actually started by linking everything to the SDG goals that they meet and then um, speaking, essentially reporting under those headings. But yeah, to what extent does that have weight in either in society or in what it is that we're doing, financial reporting, financial management, uh, governance and the like? All right, so I'm gonna start first with the academic aspect of it. Um, you would ideally be needing to think in an integrated way when you look at things such as questions around the Companies Act, your King Code, um, if that comes up, um, things such as your CPC, your Code of Professional Conduct. Those, of course, are housed in your auditing module. But I believe that a question would have to, to a certain extent, direct you towards how far you need to go to insofar as thinking, fine, um, when I think ESG, governance, the governance aspect of things speaks to the management of an entity, um, the conduct of the management of an entity. And when we talk conduct, we are talking actual compliance with laws and regulations. Now question becomes what laws and regulations apply to an entity? Your company's act provisions apply to a company. Um, and depending on the industry the company is in, you would then need to consider whether there are any legislations, for instance, if, there is, if this entity exists within a mining space, there is a lot of legislation that speaks to mining. So you would expect that that entity is to a certain extent, or in fact, to a great extent, um, compliant with the laws and regulations surrounding the mining industry. That is the academic aspect of things. But coming over to broader society and the running of a business, this is, this is important. In fact, it is becoming increasingly important. And you will see as, the, as we progress into this, this session that we have here, just how important this has become. It has become so important that standard setting bodies have come together to say, guys, this is the way we are having climate challenges, the way we are having sustainability issues. It is high time we all gather together and it's high time we all come together and create frameworks that will ensure that the reporting on ESG matters is actually of such a nature or is, is, is such that it is structured, number one, it is speaking in a common language that will be understood by every entity that is preparing annual financial statements. And over and above that is communicating what it purports to communicate without overly making it seem like entities are good corporate social entities. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Thanks a lot, Musimi. Thank you. Um, there was another hand, I believe.
Will the person who had raised their hand please just unmute and let's have a two-way conversation. Okay, so given that we have these environmental, social and governance aspects that are essentially um, a means to operationalize these sustainability pillars, there is a need to disclose these. And this is where we have had the king code of corporate governance come into play. We have had the integrated reporting initiatives that we have seen, and all of these also provide us with a lot of information that relates to sustainability from an entity's perspective. However, there has been a bit of a problem, and this problem stemmed from as far back as the year 2002. When the King Report on Corporate Governance came out, the King II in 2002, in its introduction and background, there was a problem that was identified. And what, it's, what was identified is, and, and I quote straight from paragraph 27, is that stakeholders, and when we talk about stakeholders here, we are talking about everyone who is interested in the operations of a business. By everyone, I mean the tax authorities, I mean the, debt, the creditors, the debtors of the entity, the investors in the entity, and the environment in which the entity operates and many others, you know, the employees of the entity, et cetera, et cetera. So it says, in, it says what stakeholders are looking for are reports that evidence good stewardship by the directors. Now, what is good stewardship by the directors? Good stewardship by the directors would simply- I beg your pardon? Hello, is, is there somebody trying to give a response? All right, so it says what stakeholders are looking for are reports that evidence good stewardship by, di by the directors. And good stewardship by the directors, guys, would mean the directors are number one, using the assets of the organization to generate a desirable return for investors. Over and above that, it would mean the directors have such strategies and policies and procedures in place that meet the ESG targets of the organization in comparison to other entities. It then says in the second sentence, while communicating in financial terms is retrospective, this is in a common language that is understandable to all stakeholders. Simply put, um, what this means is, when an entity prepares financial information or financial statements, it prepares them at year end, and the accounting in the financial statements is for the year that has just ended. So it is literally a retrospective account of what has been done or what has been happening from a transaction and economic aspect of things. And all of this is in a common language because it is in accordance with frameworks. The framework could be the IFRS, other frameworks could be US GARP or EU GARP, whatever, but it is prepared, the financial information, although it's retrospective, is prepared in a language that is common and is understandable to every stakeholder who is intended to make use of the financial information. The difficulty with communicating the less defined sustainability, and when we talk about the less defined sustainability here, we're talking about the ESG elements. So the difficulty with communicating the less defined sustainability or the non-financial aspects is that there is no universal reporting standard 
or language that has been developed. So no universal reporting standard or language has yet been developed. This was in 2002. It goes on then to say what share owners, especially institutional investors, are under want are understandable measurements to enable them to judge stewardship, performance, conformance, and sustainability on a common basis. Now, what this implies to us is that financial information is prepared using a common language being the IFRS for argument's sake. However, when we come to things such as ESG, in 2002, there had not yet been a common language that has been developed to help people such as institutional investors to judge whether the directors are good stewards, whether the performance of the entity is actually as good as it's supposed to be, whether the entity has conformed to industry norms and practices, and whether sustainability, the sustainability of an entity can be measured on a common basis. For instance, when you look at the sustainability reporting for checkers, are you able to compare that to the sustainability reporting of SPA? In 2002, this was impossible. And to be quite honest with you to date, it is still almost impossible because entities report on, one entity reports on one thing and another reports on another in an attempt to report on their ESG and provide information to users of financial statements through the integrated reports. Now, this has necessitated the need to have universal reporting standards, and this is where the ISSB and them have come together to create standards that are going to be used, such as IFRS S1, and we're going to get to it just now in IFRS S2. But before we get there, let's talk about the interconnectedness of an entity's operations and its non-financial aspects. The first thing to understand, ladies and gentlemen, is that an entity's operations cannot be separated or, or do not separate the financial and non-financial aspects of an entity. In fact, if you were to think of an entity's operations, I would like for you to think of them as a funnel. And at the top part of the funnel, you are having the financial and the non-financial aspects of the entity coming together and then forming the piece that is going down as the operations of an entity. This is the reason why. Let's think of an entity such as Coca-Cola. We all um, have had a product from the Coca-Cola company, be it a Fanta, Coca-Cola, a Sprite, whatever it is. Let's think of its operations. The operations of Coca-Cola would have as a starting point. This is us working um, back to the source where the product that we are finding on the shelf at Woolies, at Checkers, ShopRite, wherever, going back to the source to say, how did we get to this finished product? The first thing would be the sourcing of water. The second thing would be in, in the operation would be carbonating the water. The third thing would be making chemical compounds that give flavor to the product. The fourth thing then would be including the sugar and whatever else. And once all of these have been put together, they would be mixed using property, plant, and equipment. 
most likely plant. Having combined all of these, these would then be transferred across the plant where they are going to be poured into containers. But when we look at these containers, these containers are either made of bottle or they are cans or they are plastic. So glass bottles, cans or plastic. When we look at the ones that are plastic, there is a sourcing of resin that then gets blown up into the bottles that we see. The same is true with the glass and the cans as well. And once the containers have been prepared using the same property plant and equipment, we will then have the combined liquid poured into the product, into the container to make the full product. Once that product has been made, it will then be moved from the production facility to where it'll be stored in pallets or cases and then be sent through to suppliers who are going to ultimately sell it to you and I, the end consumer. Now, in all of these bits and pieces of the value chain, we have not, we've just simply been talking about a series of activities. But let's look at all of that to say, fine, in order to source the water, we are impacting the environment. And this is a non-financial aspect. However, added to this, we need to pay for the water because water is a source or a resource rather that is paid for. The sugar, the, 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 the chemical compounding, all of that needs to be financed. Where is this financing coming from? The financing is coming from either loans or shareholders investing money so that the entity can buy its raw materials and convert these raw materials using plant that is most likely purchased on loan to ultimately give us the full product that then gets sold over to chains such as your spa, checkers shop, right, your filling stations, et cetera. And so the cycle continues. So we cannot, so, so what we're trying to say here is the operations of an entity such as Coca-Cola do not separate financial and non-financial aspects of the entity. However, when we go to reading in our financial statements, what we see is a picture that simply says, the financial information is here. We have the financial statements prepared in accordance with the IFRS. You've got your statement of comprehensive income. You've got your cash flow statement. You've got your statement of changes in equity. You have your cash flow statement there, but you also have your statement of financial position there along with the accompanying notes. But that has not necessarily painted a full picture of the operations of an entity. Because it is seeming to sort of separate the financial from the non-financial aspects of the operations of an entity, which is not a true picture of what happens on a day-to-day -day basis. Because to have that plant and machinery that works in the business, you needed to have financed it. To buy the raw materials, you needed to finance them, albeit for 30, 90 days. You needed financing for them. So the separation of these two is, 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 is what we are finding to be a problem. And because of this problem, it is important for us now in an attempt to generate value or valuable information for entities. It's important for us to report on the entity's performance and its financial position in a way that integrates the non-financial aspects because the non-financial aspects, once again, do not exist separately from the financial aspects. And one thing I want to just emphasize here is that when 
directors are issuing a report, what they are doing is they are merely saying, the, we have a duty of accountability. We have to account to providers of capital and funding. And in us reporting to our providers, we are discharging this duty. But we cannot, it's, it's unacceptable for us to discharge this duty only on a financial basis. We need to paint a true picture. When a user of the financial statements or a user of the reports sits with the reports, they must have a full picture of how the entity is impacting the environment, how the entity is impacting society, how the entity's governance proce processes are all acting together with the other elements of sustainability to produce the financial results that we are seeing. And in thinking about this duty to account to providers of funding and capital, I think we need to pause for a moment as well and think to ourselves, who are the providers of capital or funding? And truth of the matter is, yes, we say entities go to banks to borrow money, but how do banks they make their money? The bank makes their money from you and I depositing money into our bank accounts, and the banks then on-lend the money for a return. If we are to then say, fine, this is us saying the entity has borrowed money from the bank, the bank sources its money from us, people on the street. If on the other hand, the entity that is Coca-Cola has sourced its funding from capital investors, such as institutional investors and the likes, we need to then think to ourselves, who are the institutional investors making their money from? How are they sourcing the capital that they on-lend or invest in businesses? They're, sorting it from, they're sourcing that capital from pension funds, from people like you and I who are having jobs and are having pensions that we are trying to save towards. So truth of the matter is, a provider of capital is not an RMB, uh, an Investec, uh, an FNB, or any of the investment houses. The providers of capital and funding are you and I. To this end, we need to make sure that the language in reporting is clear, is concise, and is understandable. Because ultimately, it is you and I, the people in the street, who are supposed to understand how the economy is being impacted by the operations of an entity, how society is being impacted, and lastly, how the governance arrangements of an entity ensure that the entity produces the desired results for businesses. I'm going to pause here for a moment and take any questions. Do we have any questions so far? Uh, Yes. Um, it's me again. It's it's not a question more than it is an uh, an input. And I think I like how you touched at the end to say uh, the providers of uh, capital are you and I. And you know I'm an investor. And for the last I think ten years I've tried to essentially make it fashionable in our circles to invest to do this sort of thing over and above actually what we already do. We might sometimes refer to it as a double taxation because if you have a pension fund, you're sorry, already- my, Sorry, Lisa, because I'm gonna stop you there for a second. Yeah. My, my network broke off for a second. So I lost you at yeah. the point where you're saying um, it is you and I who are the providers of capital. Yes, 
and I was saying that, I mean, over the last couple of years, I'm sure like 10, I've essentially tried to make it fashionable to invest. And I think it's actually for the first time, um, Oh, guys, we lost him. And I think he was making an interesting... I'm seeing a hand that's up. Yeah, I think I'm back. Okay, sorry, we lost you there. Yeah, no, I have a theory, actually, um, that whenever I discuss uh, these things, uh, Vodacom makes it clear that they don't like such conversations, so they normally cut my network. So it happens <laughs> you know. But I think just to give the input to say, I haven't seen that it resonates enough um, with people that, you know, when you feel bad, I've seen the statistics uh, that say I think only 3% of South Africans can afford to retire comfortably. You know, and you think, for example, putting away money into a pension is compulsory. Mm. And when we think of what does it mean to retire and to retire comfortably, it means the ability to afford a roof over your head, food on your plate. And I think by nature of how late that happens in life to be able to afford your medication. And the none involvement of what happens to your payslip. You know, we complain about tax and complain about politicians, but there's also another part of the payslip, which is the pension fund portion as well, that we don't complain about. And annually, you actually can attend your AGM. And as a shareholder, you actually can propose, ideally before the AGM, but if you've missed that opportunity, you actually can attend there itself and say, listen, in 30 to 40 years time, when it's time for me to retire, I don't want to spend my money, for example, having to get on a taxi and drive all the way to wherever, Senton, Houghton, if you in the other provinces to town, as we like to call it. You know, if you're in Limpopo, going to Polokwane is called going to town. Yeah. You actually can say to your pension fund, listen, have a look at how many of our members are from, let's say, Limpopo, and actually build a village hospital, build a village school. And those are not only actually social infrastructure, but they're also economic in nature, because by the time your child goes to tax, graduates as a doctor, they actually can come and serve as a doctor in that village hospital that was built by your pensions. Now, when you get to retirement, instead of getting a pot of money, let's say 5 million, 7 million, that cannot buy you anything because most of us are going to retire back home. You're going to go back to Eastern Cape, KZN, you name it. When it's time, those last few years where really you need a care, when you go back there, instead of going back there with three to five million rands, that's going to do nothing for you. You can't buy oxygen with that amount of money. Mm -hmm. You actually end up with infrastructure that has been built by your pensions. And maybe your, your, the amount that you get back might be a million or two. But when you have a hospital nearby, when you have your kids being able to make a livelihood nearby, a million or two is actually more than enough to retire on. 
And I think I'll leave it on that note. Um, but just to tie a few of those ESG points um, together so that we're not, it doesn't seem as if we're just talking about trees somewhere in the Amazon or we're talking about oil spills somewhere in Brazil. Actually, just thinking about how every day your life is impacted by the fact that you are a productive member of society. And exactly. if you're productive for 40 years, you shouldn't uh, suffer at retirement. Thank you shouldn't you. be suffering at retirement, absolutely. And and while I see the conversation there is saying we've shifted from ESG to 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 investments, it really is that. It it really it's not a it's not us shifting. It's us translating investments into ESG. Because what this means is just to go back to your example, um, what you're saying is you are one needing to hold your stewards to account. Who are the stewards? The stewards are your directors of your Alex Forbes and and all these entities with which we are having investments to say, guys, yes, I'm currently in a big city, but I come from a place where there is a need for development. And part of the need to development to develop needs to be centered around things such as ensuring that there is proper infrastructure in areas that are not cosmopolitan outside of our cities. Think of the development, the building and development of a hospital. If an Alexander Forbes builds a hospital in say, I'm gonna, for argument's sake, um, take it to maybe Rampatel. If they build a state of the art hospital there, number one, that hospital is going to employ people in the area. Do you agree with me? So there is a social element to it. It's also going to be impacting the environment there. So there's going to be an element of the environmental aspect of it being touched and changed. Thirdly, that hospital is going to need to be run. So there's a governance leg to it as well to say, how is this hospital going to be managed? What are the management practices? How is the board going to be composed? Who is going to be executive? Who's going to be non-executive? The ethics committee, the social and ethics committee, the audit committee, all of the compositions there that make sure that the governance is run such that the entity meets its targets. And once again, I, I hope you guys see the interconnectedness of all of these things to say, yes, there is an, an economic event that we are proposing here, but the economic event cannot exist separately from the sustainability pillars. Is it all clear for everyone? Yes, Lisa, I see your hand is up again. Yeah, and I mean, so yeah, and to give, to give the last example, um, you know, I went, I went, I went um, home recently, and it was sad to see in the village. Number one, there either are no kids, so that's fine. That implies that there's someone hunting, um, learning, but the ones that were there were drinking and you name it, right? Mm which is something that I, I I grew up on and I know exactly that because they're under inspired there is nothing yeah. they under inspired exactly. there's nothing that inspires their thinking there's nothing that creates commitments yeah. for them when they are not in school yeah and, and human beings are, are are built such that they every human being is built yeah. such that they have something to look forward to yeah yeah, and if there's and and it's either you're looking forward to something productive or not, but you're looking forward to something. Every yeah. day that you wake up, you're looking forward to something. 
be yeah. it good or bad, there's something that lies ahead of you and yeah. Yeah, and I mean, coming then to that um, stakeholder enge engagement, stakeholder, um, um, what's this, um, shareholder democracy. I mean, I actually made a resolution that from now on, every AGM I go to, I have a friend um, that essentially has, she has an NPO that trains kids how to do robotics and AI. Mm. And, you know, for as little as 30,000 rand, she can put a container in a community and then essentially it serves as a classroom. And what's fascinating about kids, to your point, you know, in a village, a village can look the same for 50 years if nothing is added. But if you put a computer in a village, they did this experiment in, in India. Kids, by their natural curiosity, because that's new to the environment, they take turns just playing with it and figuring out what is it that it's doing. And you come back a year, two years later, the literacy of everyone in the village has gone up because new information, new stimulus has been introduced. Exactly. And coming to ESG and these factors, I mean, I attend my AGM, be it of my pension fund or of my individual shares that I select. And I will say to management, listen, there's no reason why every village that I can name or I drive on my way to, uh, on my way home, in which you've got a shop or a mine or whatever, in near or in that community, you can't put a container there to teach kids AI and robotics. Here's Rose, a lady that says that she's actually started an NPO and it's her dream to teach kids that. Fund her and at 30,000 rand per village, the ROI is it's phenomenal. You know, 10, 15 years from now, you've got kids in metric that not only went through school, but they academically switched on intellectually. They know how a machine works. They're not and introduced to computers for the first time in first year. Exactly, exactly. Um, and for me, it's a low-hanging bar. If we understand that type of example and what that unlocks, ESG then just becomes another factor in the exam where when you're running out of time, you quickly want to add five points just so mm. that you've broadened your script, and then it means nothing. Yeah. Uh, thanks. So, yeah. Thank you so much for the perspective shared there. Um, and, and I like that you are approaching this from an investor perspective. And we're going to touch on that to say, when you are now the investor, how then would you like the ESG information to be communicated to you? So we touched on the fact that the language needs to be concise. And to your point again, um, the reported information should be decision useful in nature, it's quite like when you have financial information, strictly traditional financial information, when you look at the performance, the statement of profit or loss and other comprehensive income, when you look at the bottom line profit and you look at that basic earnings per share, if it's a listed entity, that information should bear a usefulness of sorts in nature. However, again, because we cannot separate the financial and non-financial aspects, we need the equivalent of useful information that reflects the ESG components of your or the entity in which you've invested operations or performance. And when you have better information, you stand to make better decisions. So 
another aspect of the information that you expect is for it to be comparable in nature. You expect information to be comparable from year to year. You also expect, um, expect information to be comparable from one entity to another. You expect to be able to compare the profits of SPA versus the profits of Woolies versus the profits of Checkers um, because they're in the same industry by and large and you are looking to make capital decisions. It is for this reason that the ISSB then came to the fore to say, fine, um, one, we know that there is no universal language that speaks to how we are going to report on sustainability standards. Yes, um, when you look at national level, some countries quite like South Africa have the King Code that speaks to corporate governance. There's then the international, um, the, the IR, that speaks to reporting on well, integrated reporting. And this is a global set of guidelines, not necessarily standards. So the IFRS Foundation came together and said, let's create two exposure drafts. These were issued in March of 2022. The first exposure draft is IFRS, 1, IFRS S1. This provides the general requirements for the disclosures of sustainability-related financial information. So here they say sustainability-related financial information. So the identification here is, the inform although the information is around sustainability, it is given the same prominence as financial information is. And what IFRS S1 says as an objective is, it is there or it has been put together to require an entity to disclose information about its sustainable or significant sustainability-related risks and opportunities. And this information should be useful to the primary users of general purpose financial reporting when they assess what? Enterprise value. And when we talk about enterprise value, we're talking firm value. We're talking that price per share. When you look at the share price of a Capitec share, for argument's sake, when you see 689 Rand per share, that is the enterprise value of one share. And to get the entire enterprise's value, you would, you would multiply that by the number of shares. That gives you the enterprise value. And that is one way of measuring enterprise value. There are many other ways in which an entity can measure its value. So, the objective here of S1 is to require that entities disclose information about their significant sustainability-related risks as well as opportunities. And this information should be perceived to be useful to the primary user of financial statements. And the primary user could be Alessia who is investing through the pension fund or who is investing directly in an entity or a person who uses platforms such as easy equities to buy shares. And when would this be important? When they are assessing the enterprise value of an entity and when they decide whether to provide resources and resources to the entity here is capital to the entity. This would be the case as well with lenders who are saying, let's assess the sustainability of this entity. Let's assess its performance. And its performance can no longer just be perceived to be from a sustainability, um, from a purely traditional financial information perspective. Rather, there's now considerate, there's a move for there to be consideration around sustainability. That is why banks are now, there are some banks that will not finance a project that is going to be detrimental to the environment. 
purely for that purpose. When an entity is borrowing money, is trying to borrow money from a bank and their business proposal entails impacting the environment negatively without a strategic plan on how to rehabilitate the environment, banks and banks will simply not give you a loan. And over and above that, there was a second exposure draft that was issued in March. It's IFRS S2. IFRS S2 speaks directly to climate-related disclosures. The objective of IFRS S2 here is to require entities to disclose information about their exposure to significant climate-related risks and opportunities, which will enable users of the entity's general purpose financial reporting st um, statements to assess the effects of significant climate-related risks and, report, and opportunities on the entity's enterprise value. So here, the argument again here, this, this is a standard that is specifically speaking to climate-related disclosures. And it says, as part of the objective, an entity should disclose its exposure to significant climate-related risks and opportunities. And these disclosures should enable a user of the financial information to make assessments of the effect that these risks and opportunities will have on the entity's enterprise value. Added to that in B, it says to understand how the entity's use of resources and corresponding inputs, activities, outputs, and outcomes. Think of our value chain with Coca-Cola, the example there. So to understand how the entity's use of resources and corresponding inputs, activities, outputs, and outcomes support the entity's response and response to and the strategy for managing its significant climate-related risks and opportunities. And finally, to evaluate or to allow users to evaluate the entity's ability to adapt its planning, its business model, and its operations to significant climate-related risks and opportunities. So here, if you think about an entity that is operating within the likes of your KZN, coastal parts of KZN, um, they have had floods as applied for two years now in a row. You would want an entity that is operating there to provide disclosures to say, as a result of climate-related risks such as floods, this is how the entity has now planned to move forward. It has changed its business model and its operations to as a means of responding to the climate-related risks and opportunities. Now, these were just exposure drafts. And when we go back to S1, in March of 2022, these were just exposure drafts. In S1, it spoke to the core content. And when you look at S1, guys, um, we've all done the IFRS standards. S1 is the equivalent of IAS1. Remember, IAS1 would give us the entire backdrop of financial statements where it talks about materiality, it talks about what a complete set of financial statements is, etc. So IFRS S1 is the first of the sustainability standards that were being proposed by the ISSB, which is within the IFRS Foundation stable. And it says here, unless another IFRS sustainability disclosure standard permits or requires otherwise, an entity must provide disclosures about its governance, its strategy, and when we talk about the strategy here, it would be the strategy insofar as the economic leg is concerned, 
its strategy in as far as the social leg of sustainability is concerned, as well as its strategy in so far as governance is concerned. Then risk management here, it would speak to the processes that the entity has used to identify, assess and manage its sustainability related risks. And finally, the metrics and targets information that has been used. So here, this is where the entity would need to disclose the benchmarks it has set for itself, how it measures its ESG, turning the ESG elements into quantifiable amounts against which it can compare itself year on year and it compare itself against industry competitors. This is the general requirement to say every sustainability disclosure standard must address governance, strategy, risk management, metrics and targets. Now, S2, if you go into IFRS S2, it is built around these four things. It has been broken down into the governance of climate-related disclosures, strategy-related um, issues, and so far as climate-related disclosures around risk and opportunities are concerned, the risk management of climate risks, then metrics and targets speaking to climate risk and opportunities. So because of that, I didn't get into the core content of IFRS 2. What then happened is that, um, after the exposure draft was published, there were conversations that had to take place where people had to comment on the exposure drafts. And we got to a point where the standards were launched on the 26th of June, which is two weeks ago, I think. They were launched across the world, um, beginning in Nigeria, I think on the 26th of June and in South Africa on the 29th of June, 2023, they were hosted by the JSE. Um, the aim here with these standards, guys, is once again to enhance transparency and trust in company disclosures pertaining to sustainability. Remember, we have the King Code of Corporate Governance. There's also the integrated reporting that has been done in terms of guidelines. But across the globe, you find that there are country-specific equivalents of the King Code that then speak to the disclosures that entities make. Now, if you are Alice Hizer, who is here in South Africa trying to make an investment in an entity that is in the US, and you're looking at the sustainability reporting, you wouldn't necessarily be able to, one, trust that the disclosures are what they are, because you don't have a full understanding of the framework surrounding the sustainability disclosures. Two, you don't know whether those are audited. But now with the IFRS having the ISSB rather, having brought about IFRS S1 and S2, we are likely to have a common base of requirements across the globe, increasing transparency around sustainability and also enhancing trust in company disclosures because one of the things that are likely to happen is even sustainability disclosures are likely to now be subjected to audits. Um, there is an initiative that is currently underway to have auditing standards that are put together to audit sustainability disclosures. So once the sustainability disclosures are auditable and do get audited, there will be an element of trust that is enhanced across the globe insofar as financial reporting is concerned because the financial reports will contain both traditional financial reporting as well as sustainability related financial reporting. And also anticipated that this will aid in investment decisions where sustainability related risks and opportunities are expected to impact entities prospects this we touched on briefly in the conversation with Lisa Richard just now 
And as discussed, the IFRS S1 is akin to IS1 and IS8. It pre pre prescribes a comprehensive set of disclosure requirements. IFRS 2, on the other hand, focuses on climate-related physical risks, transition risks, where, for instance, climate-related transition risks where um, entities are transitioning from spaces that are highly risky to spaces that are low risk. For instance, a move of a plant from Durban to perhaps a city that is more inland as inland so as to avoid flooding. Then climate-related opportunities um, where, for instance, an entity is that is relying heavily on the supply of water in its business is responding to the fact that water has become a scarce resource and then just sources opportunities or finds opportunities on its management of production and, and the likes. And the one thing that underpins IFRS S1 and S2 is climate first, because we have a dire issue with the climate, the global climate landscape, but not climate only, which is why we, okay, so the, the climate first issue is to say the first specific standard had to be on climate because climate change is an urgent matter but we're not only considering climate when talking sustainability, which is why there is IFRS S1, which acts as the backbone of all IFRS sustainability standards that are going to be incorporated. And the idea here is for IFRS S1 and S2 to be incorporated alongside the traditional financial statements. And by traditional financial statements, I'm referring to statement of comprehensive income, financial position, statement of changes in equity, et cetera. So to give the sustainability reporting equal prominence with the traditional financial statements. Effective date will be the 1st of January, 2024. Now, why are we speaking about this? And so far as adoption is concerned, Ghana and Nigeria have already committed to adopting these. South Africa is still um, considering adopting these simply because we are undertaking research as, as the South African accounting body to see whether this will be worthwhile or not. South Africa already has the King Code of Corporate Governance. Um, their corporate, gov their, their sustainability guidelines that the JSE has actually issued to entities in South Africa that listed entities are already encouraged to, to consider and apply. There's also the integrated reporting frameworks that exist. So if applying IFRS S1 and S2 is not going to add to what is already the case here in South Africa, it might just not make it worthwhile. And so currently there's a lot of research that is underway in South Africa insofar as the impact of IFRS S1 and S2 is concerned on financial reporting in South Africa. And because of the research that is being undertaken, we need to now look at prior research that was done on the adoption of sustainability-related disclosures and whether sustainability-related disclosures have had an impact on enterprise value. Remember, the selling point that the ISSB is, give, is, is, is providing when they speak of S1 and S2, they talk about enterprise value. But in other parts of the world, there have been sustainability-related disclosures that are imposed, one of the countries being India. In India, there was an, an, an imposition of what they called the CSR the CSR imposition by legislation to say entities need to undertake initiatives that evidence that they are good corporate citizens and they need to report on these. So they had CSR performance 
where they performed activities around ESG and they committed money towards those and had to disclose that they've committed money, they have done ABCD, but how has that impacted enterprise value? So for quite some while, there's been uh, a lot of research that is done um, to speak to to just evaluate the relationship between disclosing your C and when we talk CSR disclosure guys we're simply talking about um, sustainability related disclosures because your sustainability related disclosures speak to whether you are a responsible corporate citizen and to be a, a responsible corporate citizen you need to be thinking ESG so there's been a lot of research that tries to establish whether when an entity undertakes CSR performance or activities and then provides disclosures on these, does it then impact enterprise value? And the determination of enterprise value is, 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 is also, um, the courts are not out on it as yet because sometimes you use a Tobin's Q, which is what they, that's what they use, a Tobin's Q, or you use a market figure that has been determined by analysts using various methods. So when we think methods we now of, of, of determining firm, firm value, we now need to think financial performance versus firm value. The same line of thinking would apply to CSR disclosures. When we look at financial performance, we know that entities that are consistently performing better as evidenced by their profits automatically translate into entities that have increasing firm value. So when an entity is undertaking good CSR, that is to say, this entity is taking care of its employees. This entity is taking care of the environment in which it operates. This entity has good governance processes. This will then translate into the entity being able to have good controls. And these controls will also most likely then create a financial return that is such that the value of the firm will go up. Over and above that, the entity, if it's a good corporate citizen, it'll create a good reputation for itself. And we know that the reputation of an entity can have a value of sorts attached to it. So there is an interplay between CSR and sustainability. And there is an interplay between CSR performance and CSR disclosure. So CSR performance is the acts that are done in pursuit of ESG targets. CSR disclosure is the sustainability related disclosures on the CSR performance of an entity. However, we need to now think of two things. When we think, will an entity's firm value go up when they provide sustainability, positive sustainability related disclosures, or will it go down? We need to consider two theories, and you guys have come across this, the agency theory and the stakeholder theory. The agency theory simply says, an organization or an entity exists to make a return for shareholders and nothing but. A stakeholder theory approach says an entity is there to make or create value, not just for shareholders, but for everybody, the environment in which it operates, the society in which it operates. And truth is different parts of the world are postured differently. Some parts of the world are still of the belief that an entity or are by and large still of the belief that an entity should create returns for its um, shareholders only. Other parts of the, of the world believe that they should create value for stakeholders as well. 
And so when you go into these different countries, what you find is that in countries that believe in the agency theory, countries such as your China, your India, they don't believe that undertaking CSR activities and subsequently disclosing, providing disclosures on those adds any value to an entity. So in such entities, it has been found in such countries that are agency theorist in nature, it has been found that the disclosure of CSRs or sustainability related disclosures, that disclosure evidencing involvement in CSR is actually value destroying. It reduces firm value. It reduces enterprise value. Whereas in your Western world, where it is believed that organizations or businesses exist for the greater community and stakeholder body, increasing CSR performance and providing disclosures has been found to increase enterprise value. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to ask you guys a question later on. I'm going to skip this part with the relevance in the interest of time. And this part here just speaks to how accounting researchers have actually been interested in firms' disclosures about their CSR activities to say, what is it that is being disclosed? Are, are these disclosures value relevant? Is it important for the people that are valuating businesses to see these disclosures? If we are arguing, if we and the IASSB are arguing that having sustainability-related disclosures has an impact on enterprise value, Account, the accounting research, the body of accounting researchers is saying, are these really relevant? Are these disclosures really relevant? And if they are, do these disclosures bear the same relevance as the information that is contained in the traditional financial reports, which is what the ISSB is saying. And over and above that, accounting researchers are also interested in knowing whether the information content of these CSR disclosures can be quantified into measures that allow for overall performance of firms to be determined. And when we talk overall performance, we say performance insofar as the statement of profit or loss and other comprehensive income, plus performance insofar as CSR or sustainability initiatives are concerned. And can these be compared across industries? Now, what we have found in prior studies is that um, there has been a positive negative or no relationship at all between these disclosures and firm performance in certain instances, depending on the setting. In a setting where you have agency theorists, there has largely been a negative association, where if an entity is dedicating money towards rehabilitating environment it works in, where an entity has taken initiatives such as going to a Rampathele to go develop the the, the area by opening a hospital or uh, an old age people's facility or developing sports grants for schools where entities have been seen to be doing that from a social perspective in agency theorist countries. This has been seen to be creating a negative return from the perspective of market analysts. Whereas in stakeholder orientated spaces, this has been seen to be creating the opposite effect. But this is us looking at an overall perspective of things. Researchers have now delved deeper into saying, when we look at CSR performance, when we look at those aspects of ESG and we try and tackle them individually, what exactly are we looking at? 
they then came, across, came up with a few dimensions that are then evidenced. So the, 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 these are dimensions of CSR performance that are evidenced by disclosures, because you cannot say I did ABCD without actually providing evidence. And the evidence lies in the disclosures and the proof of expenditures on these things. So they said, here are a few dimensions from a research perspective, the environment dimension, the social dimension, the governance dimension, the employee dimension, and the product dimensions. This is just to name a few. There are researchers who have actually done research on more than five of these and identified more of these dimensions. But for purposes of today, just to limit our conversation, we're going to keep it at these. And when you look at what has happened is in all of the number of studies that have been undertaken, guys, and I've got a few here, but we're just going to go through the first four. I've got about eight studies, just the first four in the interest of time. Um, in the first column, we've got the study. In the second column, we have the CSR performance, which is the activities that are undertaken or the performance dimension being one of these either environment, social governance, employee, product dimension, or the disclosure on these CSR performance. And we use, in this case, I'm using CSR performance or performance dimension and disclosure interchangeably because your disclosures are actually evidence of what has been done. And what has been done is your CSR performance. And your CSR performance can be bucketed into the different dimensions. And we look at firm value in the third column. And firm value is determined in a number of ways. There's Tobin's Q. Tobin's Q is quite a, a frequently used. It's a mathematical calculation, guys, that determines the value of an entity. Then you have the fundamental value per share, which you can get on a securities exchange. Then you have market value that is determined using Olson's residual income valuation and firm market value as measured by the cumulative abnormal returns of a firm. So again, in in us having an argument that says your sustainability-related disclosures, when Lisekhisha looks at them, he will then be able to say, fine, it impacts firm value in that it allows me to, to measure the performance and, and, and. That value, the determination of that firm value can be done using a number of methodologies. Now, from the research, we were testing, or these researchers were trying to determine whether if CSR performance is undertaken, does it lead to enterprise value being positive? Does it, does it positively impact enterprise value or whether it negatively impacts it or whether the result is insignificant? And with Kane et al, here what happened is it was a scenario similar to what we have in South Africa. Currently in South Africa, a number of listed entities are using the integrated reporting framework to provide CSR disclosures or sustainability related disclosures. And there's also the King 3 code that they abide by. It was found here that when an entity provides unexpected disclosures on CSR or on or sustainability related disclosures. So if it was only expected that an entity will provide CSR disclosures on their governance practices and how they impact the environment, and the market then finds that in this financial year, they also disclose their social impact. The measurement of Tobin's Q as firm value was positively impacted. In a scenario where there were no disclosures at all, and in Elliott et al, 2014, there was now disclosure for the first time 
firm value was found to be going up. In a scenario where Bose et al. had found a means to check overall performance of overall CSR performance, looking at all the dimensions listed and summed up together, they found that there was a positive impact to firm value. However, Manchi Raja and Raj Kopel, and here I want to highlight that these, this, research, this, this research done in 2017 was done in India. When they looked at the overall performance, and by overall performance, they're saying, let's look at all of the sustainability-related disclosures, and let's backtrack to say, what do they evidence? These disclosures evidence the E, the S, and the G. So overall, there was an undertaking of sustainability-related activities pertaining to the environment, the social, the governance. And so much money was dedicated to that because when you undertake these things, guys, you part with money. It's an investment of sorts. This was in India. Overall performance of sustainability-related activities in CSR performance, the market value was negatively impacted. So what this says to us is that in one setting, undertaking CSR can increase your firm value or your enterprise value. In another setting, it can reduce it. And in the following slides, we had um, a research project done by Sheikh. He broke it down to the different um, dimensions of CSR to say the environment dimension, community dimension, diversity, employee relations. And it was found that all of these increased um, the firm value impacted enterprise value positively and the employee relations aspect where you're looking at things like employees being given the correct or a fair amount of pension funding, medical aid, leave days, etc. There was an insignificant effect on enterprise value. I just want to come to the overall results. The overall results of studies surrounding sustainability related disclosures and enterprise value reveal that in developing countries, the undertaking of CSR activities and the consequent disclosure of sustainability-related disclosures has not been value enhancing for firms or for entities. On the other hand, in developed countries, which are largely um, your Western and European countries, where CSR performance is viewed as an imperative for firms, the results have indicated largely that there is a positive relationship between CSR performance and firm value. That is to say, there is the more an entity undertakes CSR activities and the more an entity discloses these CSR activities, the more there has been a positive impact on enterprise value. This is in developed Western countries. However, in developing countries, this has not been the case. The opposite has in fact been the case. Now my question to you guys is, what do you think this may mean for South Africa and its adoption of FS S1 and S2 if South Africa chooses to adopt it? Guys, that's my question before we go. Lesa are you there? I'm still here, Bussujan. What are your thoughts? I got myself in trouble. The teacher knows my name. Absolutely. You're that guy sitting in the front row raising his hand every time. So let's go for it. <laughs> yeah. 
Look, I think the biggest one um, in the absence of something like I wasn't paying attention was where you mentioned that South Africa is still uh, considering whether they should adopt, um, I mean, the sustainability reporting um, as it is uh, prescribed by S1 and S2. And the immediate thing that came to me is it would be a joke if we don't, because we, we remain one of the most unequal societies over and above uh, any other factors that um, affect uh, our firm values. And as you've indicated with KZN and the, and the uh, climate-related um, disclosure, so on both S1 and S2, they actually are very relevant uh, to us as a country. That being said, I think, and I think as you we were speaking as well about um, where there's a lean towards agency versus stakeholder theory, um, especially in the disclosures, I was concerned it sounded as if we are to, and it makes sense why we are talking about reporting itself. And I thought, but what's happening on the ground? You know, it's one thing that the reporting and the reporting tools are, able, are not, or they are able to capture um, the metrics that they're measuring and then report on them. And then it shows that it's not improving. And then therefore it's not applicable for us. But assuming that even that is sorted, I think the, this is one of the things that really can start being valuable when it comes to addressing our inequality issues and our historical issues in a meaningful manner, you know? Uh, yeah, I think- Question to you. Yeah. I, I get a sense that you are responding from a place of thinking, we are not reporting on these things as for argument's sake listed entities in South Africa. I'm responding from a perspective that says, when I value a company to buy on the JSE, Mm -hmm. the sustainability aspect doesn't stand out to me such that when I read an annual report I skip past it or when I try to read it it seems somewhat superficial you know it's yeah so you're leaning towards saying once we have these standards and for, for argument's sake South Africa adopts them it would help you trust more in in the sustainability-related disclosures? Not just trust more, but it will actually standardize the reporting to enable me to make an economic decision on the value of each share that I'm buying. So for example, when it comes to firm value, currently the way the reporting is done, I can assess whether that's good or bad, that's impactful or not, outside of what management is telling me. Versus if I can see that, okay, after this program has had has been had been uh, initiated and it's been going on for five years, this is the value of now the firm over that period as a result of that pro project. So even though I'm not seeing the size of dividends I'd like to see, I'm actually inherently uh, owning a more valuable company. Okay. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Any other? So you. So from your perspective, do you think that um, if South Africa were to adopt these, would it increase firm value, or would it not increase firm value overall, um, or largely, or would it have an impact, or, or would it would it have a, an insignificant impact? I mean. 
I think it depends on what the companies do decide to do, you know. Um, remember, ultimately, you're reporting on programs that you are running on the ground. So yeah. if a company takes the lowest hanging fruit and reports on that, it's not going to have an impact. But if a company seriously looks at the environment in which they operate, and then they decide that this is something that with our institutional muscle, we're the one person that can actually um, what's this? That can actually make a difference in this um, sector or towards this societal problem or environmental problem, and then report on that in terms of the reporting guidelines of S1 and S2. Then they definitely will have an impact. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. I noted Shonipilam Tembo. Please, will you come to the fore? Um, hi, sir. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. All right. So for me, I think it's a question because I'm just trying to um, make sense of what you are talking about here in terms of the agency and the stakeholder theorist. Right. So. What you, you, you have mentioned is that um, with the agency theorist. Yes, when the research was done, if I'm not mistaken, it was found that these countries will be, or industries will be reporting losses. And the other guys um, will be reporting profits. So what I'm trying to understand. Let me just clear that. Oh, sorry? Let's clear the jargon. They won't be reporting lo losses. It's oh, just sorry. to the say. Enterprise the enterprise value. To say before they undertook CSR disclosures, they had their share price growing at 10% for yeah. argument's sake. Yeah. And now that they are undertaking CSR performance, or yeah. rather they are, they, they, they are undertaking CSR performance and providing CSR disclosures, yeah. the shareholders are stepping back to say, but guys, why are you, why are you taking money that should be coming to us in dividends? and using it to replenish the environment, using it to buy soccer kits for, for, for kids in underprivileged schools? Why are you using it, using the money to redevelop the stadiums in, in, in the area instead of giving us that return? So as a result of this, we as investors are going to sell our investments because you are not, you are, you are the kind of agent, management is an agent for shareholders, you agree, right? Yeah. You are the kind of agents that are not just working for us. You are not working for everybody else when you are supposed to be working for us. And from that perspective, because of the disgruntlement of managers, of, of shareholders, and perhaps the greater society that is seeking to make investments, the share price will now either drop um, or it will grow at a smaller percentage. So the impact of the CSR the CSR performance and the disclosures has been such that the share price enterprise value has reduced. Okay. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I get that. So maybe what was also uh, bringing this confusion was the fact that there was where you've made reference of the 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 developed countries seemingly <coughs> um, the the enterprise values were increasing whilst the the underdeveloped or the developing countries were experiencing the opposite yes. 
So what I was just thinking in my head was that, um, I mean, assuming that these countries, uh, uh, I mean, are trading in environments that are not regulated. Because I'm thinking in my head that, for instance, let's say you've you, you've been trading as a as an industry or as a firm, and of course not taking into consideration the 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 the, the, the like the social environmental um, um, conditions, yeah. and you've been um, um, making profits, lots of them. But now that you 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 need to start reporting on these things will therefore negatively impact your productivity as well. Because if before you were just, you were focused on making uh, profits and not caring for the environment, um, it was easier for you to make money. But now that you are required to report on the other side is now um, negatively affecting your productivity. Is there a relationship between this requirement of reporting and the productivity of 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 the business which will therefore um, um negatively affect their profits and negatively affect their value as a listed company so you've asked quite a number of questions <laughs> um and i'm gonna try and break it down um one in stakeholder orientated parts of the world, which are largely first world countries, their understanding is that an entity exists for shared value. And when we talk shared value, if you are Slonipile and you have invested in, um, let's say Lisekisha is a listed entity, when you invest in it, you are looking for a return, right? A return mm -hmm. on investment in the form of profits. Mm -hmm. But if Lisa is existing in a, an economy that values shared value, the only performance measure, the, the, the performance, you know, profitability cannot be the only performance measure. Mm -hmm. I will step back as a potential investor. I'm also looking to buy shares like you in Lisa listed entity. I will first of all say, okay, yeah, no, year on year, they made profits for which is good they're making profits for 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 shareholders i see it but what are they doing to improve the community what are they doing insofar as esg that matters to me because i'm a stakeholder orientated individual in a stake and, and this business is operating in a stakeholder orientated environment so i will then say i wouldn't mind investing in this entity and seeing profits grow at a lower rate. Maybe for the past 15 years, profits have been growing at 15%. I'm happy to see profits grow at 2% for as long as the difference in the growth in profits can be accounted for by the CSR initiatives that are evidenced by the CSR disclosures. Mm -hmm. So from the perspective of an outsider, I will say, no, I see they're making profits, but can't they use some of these profits to go build that hospital? Can't mm -hmm. they use some of these profits to go and develop the education system? Because they are not doing that, I will not value them to be a high value firm. Mm -hmm. So if I was an analyst out mm -hmm. in the market 
trying to place a value on this firm, I would then say, no, this the the, uh, the value of this firm is not really 680 per share. It's probably 200 a share because all that they're concerned with is retaining, they, they all year on year, they're wanting to grow their retained earnings. But when I look at, say, for instance, their statement of cash flows, I'm not seeing any investments there that are towards ESG. And what this is telling me is that even in their staff complement, they're not trying to employ people who are going to be purely responsible for sustainability. They perhaps don't even have a team that has a head of sustainability, a senior manager in sustainability, a manager in sustainability, um, a graduate in sustainability. They're not even trying to in, in invest money in having people in the market become specialists at sustainability. So I'm not going to attach any value to this firm because yeah. I'm a stakeholder orientated entity. As yeah, a potential yeah. investor who is also a market analyst, and I'm looking at an entity that is operating in an economy such as the U.S., where they truly they 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 are hell bent on stakeholder inclusivity. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think I I I, I understand it better from 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 the perspective of the of the of the market analyst because that for me makes more sense mm -hmm. um but then now i think i think i was just falling short on how investors think you know because normally um outside of knowing this uh, sustainability reporting normally things that drives or some of the things that increases the value of the enterprise is its reputation right um, so um if you are if you are doing good and 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 you have got a good reputation normally like for instance if as a company something bad happens in your company that normally tends to affect the the the, the share price of the company negatively so I, I normally associate that with the reputation and how it also um the relationship it has with the share price hence my my thoughts around this was is it because once the public knows and the investors know that you are not um, um, taking care of the environment and therefore meaning that the value that you seemingly present to be making is not really true value because you it, it is it is not inclusive of the of the other part of the mm -hmm. operations mm -hmm. so that for me makes more uh, more sense but my last question was that what like what is the what is the difference between the the developed countries and the and the developing countries what makes the 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 outcome adverse is it okay. because the developed countries are properly regulated so as a company when you are when you are trading or, or at the initial stage of, of of trading when you start making profit that profit is, is has already been governed by the regulations that touch on the the social and environmental part of the uh, part of things, and on the other countries, could it be that they do not have those regulations? That is why when this um, reporting kicks in, it would negatively affect them automatically. All right, that's such an interesting question. I'm glad you you asked it. It's 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 one of the things that I I researched when I was doing my masters. The, the, and I'm going to start with developing countries. 
So with developing countries, they are largely made up of family businesses. They're made up of family businesses. And so if it's a family business, I mean, we're trying to, we're making profits just so we can put kids to school, through school. We're trying to make profits so we can um, keep our lights on, buy that bigger house, buy that bigger car. Um, so we are literally running the business for our own benefit. So by and large, you will find that in developing countries, they are more agency theorists by nature. And so when these businesses tend to grow and they try listing on, they try and list on securities exchange platforms such as the JSE, they find that listing may bring, may impose some requirements, requirements such as investing in CSR. And when they look at that, they just think, no ways. Mm -mm, I'm not going to do this. I'm actually not going to list. I'm just going to keep my business as is and run it the way I've run it traditionally and pass it on to my sons and my daughters. And hopefully they will pass it on to their sons and daughters. Um, conversely, when we go to your developed countries, in your developed countries, there are businesses that are by and large already matured that have listed on exchanges such as the SEC in the US. And because they've listed there, they are regulated. Because the moment you list with an, an exchange, an exchange platform where your shares are traded, you are bound by requirements. That and 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 these requirements are what you need to abide by to remain listed. So there's a lot of a whole lot more regulation in a majority of these businesses because a large proportion of them are have looked to grow and become empires that that exist beyond the family that exist to 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 benefit greater society to to generate bigger returns from getting capital contributions from shareholders like you and I who could just go on easy equities and buy shares all right no um yeah no you've answered me um so, so yeah, your more Western countries that are developed are stakeholder orientated and your largely Eastern and African countries um, which are developing are by and large um, agency theorists to say, I invested money in here. The only return I should make is to myself. Okay, no, thank you so much. Thank you. And I see there are three hands up, um, Rachel's, Ngele's hand and Phillips. Can we be cognizant of time? Rachel, you can shoot quickly so that we are out by 10 past. I want to take all three by 10 past so we are out. Okay. <laughs> How are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Um, great, thanks. Um, I want to ask from a strategic perspective. Is yes. sustainability reporting and ASG, so um, I know it's not supposed to be, but I'm asking with regards to the what you see, the nuances in the industry, or maybe during your research, what you found. Do you, companies take it more like um, an output or an outcome of uh, them doing certain things? So if I, if I want to list, I must invest. Or does it form part of the strategic planning as a whole? So for instance, when the company does their strategic planning, you know, mission, vision, values, mm. the direction, 
and cascading those down to management via KPIs and all of that, do you see that being included in the KPIs or does it become an incidental arbitrary thing that happens because they want to move to a certain area? Some businesses have been found to undertake CSR uh, for purposes of listing, truth is. Um, but a larger proportion of businesses through research have been found to be undertaking these um, CSR initiatives and consequently CSR disclosures purely because of an exogenous factor, um, such as regulation imposing these, where in certain countries there have been laws imposed to say, if you're an entity that makes a profit of at least 50, or if you make revenues of at least 50 million a year, you have to dedicate some of that money towards, or 2% of it towards replenishing the environment. If mm. you are meeting certain targets, you have to do this. There's a large proportion of entities that have had to undergo that. And it has also been found that where there is an exogenous factor such as regulation imposing this, investors get riled up and mm. don't like to see this. And that then impacts how the market perceives the entity and firm value reduces, albeit temporarily. Okay. Where there's an exogenous factor, there's been an, a decrease, a dip in firm value, but a very temporary one, where um, shortly after the earnings of an entity are, are, are published and the readers of financial statements realize, oh, they met the threshold to pay money into perhaps towards the E element of sustainability, the share price will drop for like five, six days thereafter, and mm. they are come back up. And there have been instances as well where entities just voluntarily undertake this because they feel it is good for business. And for those entities, it has been good for business. It has given them shareholder return, although it takes a while for the shareholder return to come back because you invest in something today, the return is, is, is only seen over time. Um, you invest in, for instance, getting a tar road constructed in the area in which you live. That is that that is going to create a reputation for your business, but you only reap the rewards of that reputation over time. Yeah. So, so when you said that it has been found, are there ways where you identify whether a company is doing it, um, just to you know, um, like you say. You used the big word there. So, um, so yeah, I mean, if you have an imposed law, um, all that you can do is just see from like, for instance, if, if the government was to impose that every entity that makes a bottom line profit of 500 million and above must dedicate their share, their 20 or 2% of their profit to CSR. That way you can then say, fine, I'm going to go on the JSE. Um, I'm going to go to the JSE's website, I'm going to download all of the financial statements of entities that um, that have a year end that is 30th of June. And let's say the rule starts on the 1st of June to say any entity that reports their financial statements from the 30th of June onwards must be must be committing money to, to, to CSR. You would just take the financial statements of entities on the JSE that reported um, financial statements for the 30th of June, look at their profits, you see, okay, these 10 are going to automatically fall within the bunch of companies that have to 
declare this and then just look at how the market responded, how the share price changed on the date on which the financial statements were published. So you may find that on that date, this entity's financial statements were published three months later. So 30th September, they published their financial statements and their share price dropped. That can only be, that yeah. can in more, almost every instance be attributed to the fact that, oh, on the 30th of June, they met the 500 million rand threshold. And because of the threshold, the market responded negatively and the share price went down. Okay, noted. But then the, the, the perfect way to do it would be to incorporate it in your strategic planning as the directors of the company. They so that it becomes... Look, even the ones that are doing it for purposes of listing, they do what we call greenwashing. They're trying to make themselves appear to be doing this out of the bottom of their hearts. Oh. And they incorporate it in their strategy, but you then discover, no, this is just a means to meet a certain target or to even get certain levels of funding. Okay, so then it brings in the question of whether it's ethical or not, I guess. I guess then you can go into the whole ethics conversation. I see Ngele's hand is up. Thank you so much, Rachel. Ngele, your hand is up. Hi, Ms. Yana, how are you? I'm good, thank you, how are you? Good, thanks. I'm gonna actually keep it very quick. Sure. Um, one of the things that stood out to me is where you highlighted the different approaches between the developing countries and the developed countries. Yes. And I thought that in South Africa, it would be a little bit challenging to implement S1 and S2. And I think for me, the issue that stands out the most about ESG and why it doesn't work in South Africa or might not work, I mean, it could work at some point, but currently I just feel that um, developing countries have a lot of social issues mm. that still need to be addressed for that kind of model to work. A hundred percent agreed with you. And guys, another thing is this, when you are implementing things such as new standards, it is a lot of work because one, you need to have people in your company that are upskilled to be able to become conversant in these standards for them to ultimately guide your disclosure time, guide your process of generating your disclosures when you ultimately now prepare your financial statements. That is a capital investment. You're going to need to have your accounting packages or your the packages you use to generate your disclosures also incorporating the requirements for these disclosures. Mm. So you will need to have a program, an application in your accounting department that mm. prompts you and says, okay, um, S2 paragraph 15 requires ABCD. Have you ticked this box? Yeah. So that is also developing that part of things. And mm. while you can then say we have done this, there's also going into the strategy itself again to say, from a strategic perspective, we clearly are going to need a division that speaks to this alone, an entire division. So it's a commitment insofar as salaries, and then a commitment insofar as research and development, because your CSR performance cannot just be in anything. As an entity, you have a, an ultimate strategy, an ultimate mission that supports why your entity exists. So your ESG performance needs to support the ultimate vision. True. You know, true. you can't be, I mean, you can't be an entity that is here for purposes of, let's say, creating renewable energies and then 
go and say, oh no, actually I am going to go into Emalacheni where there's coal production there and build yeah. a, a technicon that's going to generate engineers that are going to be specialists in coal mining. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So you need to, you, so there's, there's a need for research and development, continuous research and development yeah. to afford your business an opportunity to, to, to go into certain areas of ESG that speak to where the business is going. And that's why in countries where there have been impositions of these laws to say, apply 2% of your profits to CSR, companies have found themselves saying, okay, where do we take it to? We didn't intend to use this money for CSR. Where do we take it to now? Yeah. Yeah. So when are you guys going to decide what to do? Um, what I know is that the JSE is already sitting with um, a set of disclosure guidances that were published, I think, last year. So there's still an ongoing conversation there. And I know SICA is, is, is heavily considering this. I mean, the, the launch of the ISSB state um, standards was hosted at the JSE physically, but it was hosted by SICA. So I think there is going to be a drive from SICA's perspective to incorporate these at some point or another. And out of that will then be having to have lecturers go through lecturing on mm. these standards and then being comfortable enough to then set up lectures and exam, examination, um, you know, tutorials, exam papers and the like. So it's, the wheels will turn, but mm. I don't think they will turn as, as the first of January next year is two is, I mean, the, these were launched now in June. Yeah. The first yeah. of January 2024, I don't see how entities will have already um, come all right in so far as trying to apply these standards over and above what they have been applying because the King Code speaks to governance, guys. It um, is mm. report on governance based off of the King Code. There's your inter international reporting and, and, and integrated reporting frameworks that have been applied, largely applied. So the question really is, are these standards prescribing what has already been prescribed by all these other frameworks that we're already abiding by, or are they not? Mm. That's one consideration. The other consideration is if, if it is found that they are prescribing what's already been done, we can't just dismiss them and say they're not going to add value because now the attempt here is to bring an, an, an equivalence insofar as prominence between CSR disclosures and financial disclosures. So are we, how else are the King Code and the rest of the people then saying what is in the integrated report has equal prominence to what's in the financial statements. How else are they bringing that portion? Whereas the ISB saying we are bringing that and we are saying there will come a time where there's, you know, we bring in, we, these standards are being brought to create comparability, to create structure, to say every entity must report on this and this and that. And therefore this creates a scenario where they can be audited. Okay. And then generally, so when you're saying you guys are considering, because I was quite surprised to see that you're considering adopting it. Doesn't South Africa generally adopt everything in IFRS? Now, remember, IFRS, the IFRS are, are international financial reporting standards, right? Uh -huh. The IASSB are international sustainability um, standards. So they are within the, ISS, the IASSB's umbrella but they're not IFRS. So it's not to say when an entity is reporting on IFRS, it must now adopt the ISSB's standards S1 and S2. 
Okay, okay. That has not yet, that is the, the conversation at this point in time. Okay. Yeah, I saw Lisa Fisher laughed at that. I see somebody wrote <laughs> PIC, BlackRock, Vanguard, and then, Glo and, and then Global Pension Funds. Um, most of the institutional shareholders originate from the first world, the likes of Citibank, Morgan Stanley. But even those are still funded by people roaming the streets in those foreign countries. So firm value will increase likely with the adoption of its likelihood is it will increase with the adoption depending on, um, yeah, I guess it, it might increase in that instance. Yeah. Somebody said here, I can accept it where it's a small and medium company because there's one shareholder and he takes the fall. He has absolute skin in the absolutely. But if listed, it doesn't make sense not to show me where the future of the company is going to come from. True, true. And remember with traditional financial reporting, you're purely reporting on the past of the entity. Whereas your SR, your, your, your CSR performance is somewhat evidencing what the future may look like. Studies have confirmed that share value will increase. Some studies have, others have confirmed the opposite. They've said, no, it reduces. Others have said it, it really makes no difference to firm value. Um, again, depending, and I mean, with studies, it depends on how the study is structured, the design of the study, the time at which a study is conducted is also key. So the timing of the studies may have been what results in them being an increase or decrease in the firm value. And yeah, guys, so that's just it. Um, should you guys come across it? There's a hand that is up. Whose hand is up? Philip. Yes, how are you, sir? Good, thank you. How are you? Very good. Yeah, mine is going to be a quick one. You know, I you, you just raised something very important with regards to developing countries. Doesn't this thing really create a conflict between um, the economic and the, the enterprise value and how they are generating their value. For example, you just mentioned about ESCOM. If you go to Mpumalanga, you can see the amount of carbon emission that they, they, they generate, how they are destroying the ground, you know? Uh -huh. But if we are to take those people and say, let them report on the ESG, is this going to really give a true reflection of what is happening on the ground or it's going to be something else? Because we, we looking at it, developing countries, we are still far backwards in terms of technology, in terms mm. of uh, what, what is it, the economic resources that we have. We're actually surviving with the little that we have. So is this going to be a true reflection of what is in the developing countries? Right now we have coal that is being exported, going to overseas, but how is this um, linking to ESG? No, it's I'm not getting yeah. 100%. I'm just sad that we I couldn't have a full three hours with you guys. Um there is they they are so there there are proposed means to measure these, right? So there's um level one emissions, level two, level three emissions. And what that is simply put, what that would mean is for ESCOM, ESCOM would have level one emissions on its plant as it burns the coal to generate fuel. It would have level one emissions. But part of what they produce as ESCOM comes into people's homes. And from 
people's homes, there are emissions of sorts that come through the electricity that we use. For instance, if you are using an oven and your oven is one of those all style that, that have, um, forgot what that, they call that, but that thing that goes red, because that thing goes red, it, 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 it gives off emissions of sorts. So ESCOM would be having emissions on a level one basis, direct emissions, and then indirect emissions from, from our use of the electricity. So when we talk about measuring these emissions, in whose hands do we measure these? Do we measure the emission in the hands of a business such as a bakery that is using ovens? to say the bakery is emitting X amount of carbon dioxide from the use of its stoves, or are we going to say even the emissions within the bakery need to be added to the emissions of ESCOM? That's the quantifiability issue around it, number one. Number two, the reliability of the information, the auditability of, of the numbers in emissions is going to be such an issue. That's the first thing. Second thing is, when looking at an ESCOM, you wouldn't only be looking at the impact on the environment. You'd say, fine, we can quantify the impact on the environment through the coal and what have you, but let's look at the impact to society. So many people have been given funding through to study through ESCOM. Many people, many employees have been, you know, getting decent um, salaries and they have been getting decent bonuses. They have been given decent pension schemes from being employed by ESCOM. So from the people's perspective, particularly the employee aspect of things, there is a positivity there. We have seen so many times where ESCOM has financed um, things like sporting events and the likes. So from a societal perspective, it's there. But then from the governance perspective, maybe ESCOM was not such a great example. <laughs> from a governance perspective, you know, there is a lot going on in, at ESCOM. So that too would impact um, their ESG ratings. And then you would have an overall aggregation of all of these measurements. The aggregation of the measurements, they would, you would need to have matrices that you look into. And the aggregate measurement is what will be looked at to then say, fine, given that the ESG measurement is, for instance, a two and not a five, it means they are not performing well from a CSR perspective. And because they're not performing well, we can then not um, attribute a higher firm value to them. On the other hand, if you are to look at, say, a discovery, um, discovery is from a customer perspective, they are going all out to make sure that customers have a great experience of their products. They have come to a point where they are supporting um, sporting events, left, right, and center. They're supporting good health. They are doing all of these things. I'm not sure what it's like working for them, but employee, the employee aspect of it would also need to be considered. You would then look at the governance. The governance there um, would be evidenced by the compliance with, you know, their governance strategy, um, what they are reporting on insofar as um, the governance strategy is concerned, who sits where and what is being done, the strategies there. You would look at the environmental aspect of things, you know, where um, I know Discovery has gone into a few communities to go and actively engage with underprivileged areas about good health and the like. So you would then ultimately have measurements, matrices to measure their ESG and have an aggregate figure and then say, okay, fine, they are closer to a five, maybe they are 4.5, 4.6, which means that they are a good corporate citizen as evidenced by their disclosures, 
and therefore the performance, the financial performance being their profitability, further more supported by the good ratings they've gotten from an ESG perspective, both warrant an increase in shared value. Guys, I'm going to park it here. I think it's we are way, way over time. It's getting very, very late for you guys and um, you guys need your rest. But thank you so much for, for being present and for sticking around. I mean, I, I could, at the beginning of the session, I saw a number of names plus 89 participants and the numbers have not dropped. Thank you so, so much for being present. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Have yourselves a great evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, cheers, guys. Bye, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.